Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome Romain, founder and CEO of Satgarn, a climate tech venture capital firm investing in early stage pre-seed with follow-on reserves for the seed round up to 500,000 euros. Romain is a passionate entrepreneur a pragmatic idealist and genuinely a nice guy. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving us a review and following the European VC on LinkedIn. Vauban, a Qatar company, is now making it even easier to launch your angel syndicate with their new product called Atom. Angels provide first checks and are an integral component for founders to launch their businesses. With Atom, Angels can band together to launch an SPV for $2,000 plus 2% of the raised capital, which is up to $200,000. There's lower fees, more deals, and more equity ownership in the best tech companies. Check it out at vaban.io forward slash EUVC. And don't forget to mention EUVC. Welcome to the European VC. You have been a friend of ours for, I actually don't know the exact date, but for some time. So it's really cool to have you here. How are you today? I'm doing very well and I'm super thrilled to be here today. So thanks for having me. No, it's a pleasure. Romain, let's start with the basics. You know, I think you've, you've listened to a few of our episodes, I'm sure. So you know the drill. Who the hell is Romain and what brought you to where you are today? So try to make it short. Uh, so Romain Diaz... I am of French citizenship, but I'm uh, based in the wonderful city of Lisbon. And I represent a company called Sadgana, uh, which I serve as a general partner. And we're an early stage climate tech venture fund that I'm sure we'll delve more into details, uh, but really happy to tell you more about everything from the journey to founding, to my journey to VC, to Satgana, to everything we want to take this conversation towards. I think the first obvious question for me is, is your background, right? And then obviously Satgana, but let's start with the background. So what have you done in the, in the previous life, so to speak, of Homa? Yes. Uh, I remember you used to ask this question as how the hell did you end up in venture? In the wonderful <laughs> world of venture. That used yes. to be the script. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> so um, it's funny because I stumbled across a lot of old friends that had uh, that I ended up being in similar, you know, VC-like roles, but we've taken very different pathways to get there. For me, it's been very much coming from the entrepreneurial background and more specifically from the venture studio background. So if I rewind a bit for the past 10 years, I was very fortunate to uh, be part of a famous and infamous uh, venture studio called Rocket Internet that a lot of listeners would know of. And I was in the very early days of what became the first unicorn in Africa. I was in the early days of uh, Jumia in Morocco. And so that gave me sort of a first entry into the venture studio model and uh, entrepreneurship, emerging countries, and really the early stage startup building. Then I joined another venture studio in South Africa uh, that was a spin-off of Nasper's Ventures. And then I co-founded a venture studio because I always loved the zero to one phase of really yeah. helping entrepreneurs to you know, build their startup from scratch. So I served as a CEO and co-founder of a 
Cape Town-based venture studio uh, that I run for about five years and in which we have launched four companies from scratch, mostly in the fintech space, a bit of mobility, financial inclusion, but more, I would say, traditional tech businesses. Yep. I really loved the venture studio model, but a couple of years ago, I also had another realization, which is the extent of the climate crisis that we're in. And I'm sure we'll also speak a bit more about that. And that led me to actually decide to take all the learnings of what I had done before of various venture studios I had co-founded or be part of to do a new version, but this time only focused on sustainability and climate. And that venture studio that we started now a bit more than two years ago, actually turned into a VC, uh, more traditional model, precedent seed. And I can also explain a bit the rationale and how we go about it and how we still have legacy of that venture studio model. But basically that's what led me to here. And yeah, today we are more like a full, uh, you know, a pure play VC, even, though, even if yeah. we still are quite involved operationally and we'll delve a bit more into the detail. But that's the whole entrepreneurial journey that led me to the wonderful world of venture. <laughs> Thank you for ending on that note. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think that we should just get Sadgan out of the way and ask what that means because I like that. Then I, I'd love right after that to jump into in more detail this. You still have the legacy of being a venture studio and, you know, really unpack your thinking around that because we always say that, well, the venture studio model is definitely viable. It's not that it, it doesn't work, but quite a few start there and then kind of end up in a more traditional VC route either way. So I'd love to hear your journey there. 100%. Very good question. So I'll start with the first one, I guess, on the name Satgana, because that's intriguing for many people. So okay. it's a name that's made up uh, from a language uh, that is an ancient language of India, which is Sanskrit. And it means a good company or a virtuous company. That's what we're trying to be for the world in doing the right thing and in trying to maximize our positive impact. And also by doing so, we obviously hope to inspire many people to do the same thing, all while generating returns and strong returns, because our belief is that if we want to drive positive impact in the world, we also have to do so in a manner that's financially viable and attractive. Otherwise, we'll always end up being in a world where you have a dichotomy between good business and good impact. So we're really trying to do both at the same time. It doesn't mean it's easy, but that's very much the premise on which we exist. And Sadhana is trying to epitomize that. And so to your second question, the venture studio model, indeed. Um, so I've been in the space for now about 10 years. I love it, or at least in principle, I love it. I think it's also the dream of many entrepreneurs too, because a lot of us, you know, we're optimistic. We see so many things, we have ideas. So at some point, a lot of us come to the realization that it would be wonderful to be able to have a structure where we can just start many, of com many companies at the same time. But actually the realization for me is that it's very hard, first of all. Uh, secondly, that there are not many venture studios that are pure play venture studios that are actually very successful. I know of one that is really a, I would say, a very strong example. It's called eFounders out of Paris and Brussels. They spin off, I think, close to 30 companies by now. And they're really pioneers of the venture studio model. They're verticalized on B2B SaaS. And at some point, we wanted to do similar for climate, but we've decided to pivot away from this model first because we decided to source entrepreneurs that came to us with ideas. It's not that easy to find great ideas, let alone to find many of them and validate them. 
And what we realized when we launched publicly Sargana about two years ago was that we have we had a lot of deal flow of wonderful entrepreneurs coming with ideas that I or my team could never come up with uh, because they're deeply ingrained into a certain industry, certain sector, certain technology, etc. So getting them to come to us with their idea was the first realization that it's less of a pure play venture studio model, first of all, it's more akin to venture capital, but then we still stuck a bit to that venture studio idea by having economics that were more akin to a venture studio, meaning that you would invest small capital, you would be super involved, but to mitigate the risk of coming more early and investing so many resources, you would have higher equity stakes. But what we realized is that many entrepreneurs, especially the good ones, don't want to give away straight away 20% to just one venture studio, one fund. And more and more, as we came more, we became more credible in the ecosystem and had more deal flow, it was first more readable that we become a VC, first of all, because that's obviously more famous than a venture studio model. And secondly, we had a lot of co-investment opportunities, meaning VCs coming to us and saying, hey, we like you guys because you bring a certain operational involvement that we don't bring or a certain geographical um, understanding that we don't have or a certain sectoral focus that we already invested in, etc. So they bring us co-investment opportunities. But then if we, like, we can't make the venture studio economics work anymore because we can't have, let's say, 20% of equity anymore. We can have maybe 5%, 3%, 10%, depends on, on the, obviously, the amount we invest and the valuation and so on. So basically, that's the whole journey of going, going from venture studio to VC. But the legacy that we still have is that we're still super involved operationally, first of all. So we have a team where we're able to to support on technology development, impact management, marketing, finance, etc. So be more involved than your typical VC, first of all. And secondly, still to be able to come in super early and more early than a lot of institutional VCs are able to do. So tell me, Omar, well, how do you think about founders in this respect? Because I'm guessing I always kind of distinguish between the VCs that find the diamonds in the rough and thus get lower valuations for that reason and blah, 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 because it requires a commitment to someone who's a bit unproven, right? Whereas you have, on the other hand, the, the funds like 500 Emerging Europe that we're investing into who are quite open about, well, we're going for the serial entrepreneurs, the ones that we know are going to pay a high price tag, but also they know what they're doing and 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 they're very coveted and we are, are, are you know, betting against this likes of uh, Sequoia and A16C on on those deals. Your model very much works best with the first one, where you're finding those diamonds in the rough. But I'm always skeptic of models where you know have anything in there that would scare off the very best entrepreneurs. When everything comes down to it, right? Then taking on a VC that says, "Okay, I would like a little more equity in exchange for our assistance," does mean that a founder with a uh, complex around being uh, the, the, the savior of the world will be like, ah, I don't need that. I just want your money, man. Yeah. How do you work through that? What does it matter to you? That kind of thing. We have different ways, first of all, of generating deal flow. There's inbound and there's outbound. And within that, there's also different uh, ways in which we do inbound and in which we, we do outbound. And obviously, we don't get necessarily the same thing. Inbound is going to be maybe a bit more junior, unproven founders, whereas outbound is going to be maybe more specific to a theme we want to invest in or specific entrepreneurs that we've spotted that we know are going to launch their own company, their new company, etc. So it also varies a bit in terms of quantity and quality. We are valuation sensitive to an extent, but also not 
two stock on valuation. Obviously, if we lead, we're going to be the one leading valuation. If we co-invest, then we rather lean upon what other VCs may give as valuations to companies, obviously. To your question on the diamond rough versus serial entrepreneurs, we are not really strict about either or. What we try to do is to engage early with founders. So there are quite a few founders that are already in our pipeline and potentially close to getting negotiation for investment, etc. Whereas there are some others that we know are not yet at a level where they can raise with us, but we you know, check in with them on an ongoing basis and we know that when they're ready to raise and when they're at the right stage for us, we will be at the forefront of being able to invest in them, partly because we also help them. We have managed to win a few competitive deals with other VCs, whereby the founders, and that's, I agree to your point on the fact that it's maybe less the proven founders, but a lot of founders do value the fact that we're not just going to invest capital and sit back and relax, but actually help. But we don't value our help. We don't have any kind of sweat equity. So it's ad hoc. So it's basically if a founder wants help on measuring impact and putting together an impact framework or helping on their go-to-market strategy or on technology development, etc. We're able to help them, but we're not going to charge for them. We also offer perks, we also offer a number of things that we don't value. Some other funds are trying to value uh, sweat equity. For us, we're still um, you know, humble the fact that we're new into the market, so we have to build a reputation. We don't want to charge for things that are not you know, hard cash. And uh, we also want to build a reputation. We want founders to speak highly of us, which so far is very much the case, uh, so that you know we receive more deal flow, we receive more co-investment opportunities. Speak, people speak highly of us because obviously it's a people's game, and we're in for the next decades. So very much thinking long term. Roma, we've been talking a lot about the model, right? Back and forth around the model. I think that cannot be fully discussed if we don't also bring in, you know the thesis and the strategy into the conversation. I'd like to give you kind of the floor to talk a bit about, you know, what is unique about Satgana than from, you know, what you're focused on and what you're investing in versus all the, you know, 3,000, I don't know, emerging GPs out there yes. in Europe these days. So first of all, obviously, it's an industry focus or a theme focus, rather, which is climate tech. So maybe we should touch a little bit on that. As we speak, mid-October, and I think the, uh, the podcast might come a bit later, there's a, currently a bit of a downturn in the market. That's very obvious, but not in all verticals. Some verticals have suffered a lot more than others. And there's a bunch of data that proves that climate tech has actually not been as affected as other verticals. And for us, there's... Um, I guess two main reasons to this. First of all, is that I think in terms of crisis, people come back to a bit more rational stuff and to also purpose-driven stuff like we had during COVID, uh, which has also contributed to the explosion of climate and sustainability. And also the fact that climate tech, in any case, whatever happens, is going to be around for the next 30 years because we need to halve emissions by 2030. We need to get to net zero by 2050, which means decarbonizing all economies across all sectors. And so that means that in any case, there's going to be more and more and more capital, more talent, more of everything coming into the space. So that is the focus that we've decided for ourselves partly because of that economic opportunity, obviously, but also partly because we think it's the right thing to do. It's where we want to dedicate the rest of our lives, the, all our focus, energy, love, money, everything, into trying to bring as much of a positive contribution to the climate crisis. I think once you go climate, you don't go back. Uh, once you really understand the extent to which we've created a mess for ourselves, the more you actually want to do something about it. 
And so for us, it's also very much coming from a place of purpose, which is also uh, why almost of our team has invested, why we have so many LPs that are, you know, not only buying into the value proposition from a returns perspective, but also because they want to put their capital towards uh, the things that are going to have a positive impact in the world. So yeah, that's very much what we focus on. And in terms of sectors, it's uh, we've identified six sectors where we basically have a lot of deal flow and start building expertise and experts and so on. That's across transportation, energy, food and agriculture, industry and buildings, carbon removal, and circular economy. So six teams that should, if we get them right at a global level, get us to uh, halve emissions by 2030 and end up in net zero by 2050. Now you mentioned verticals or sectors, and within those, there are for sure more digital models and there's more hardware-heavy models. Yeah. I'd love to hear how you think about that and kind of slice the cake for yourself because... I think that there is some very valid critique of climate VCs not understanding tech enough to be able to actually work in the in the the ones that will actually solve the climate crisis. I think there's definitely also good answers to that or good good responses to that 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 make the critique you know uh, not apply to the fund. So for that reason, I I think that maybe. There are some people in the ecosystem, European ecosystem, that is being a bit vocal about stuff that, you know, <laughs> is kind of makes it look like like the entire VC sector is, you know, rearing off their path or, or not knowledgeable enough to do something, which I don't think is correct. But I'd love to hear your take on it, Oman, and how, how you position your fund in that. Yeah, it's a very good question and indeed a, quite a timely debate in the ecosystem at the moment. Uh, my belief is, first of all, that indeed we will not solve the climate crisis with just bits. We need, at we need atoms, that's for sure. We need to move atoms because at the end of the day, climate change is a physical problem and a chemical problem. problem so we're not going to solve it only with software. But that does not mean that we don't also mean software. So I said just now how much uh, investing into climate is important, but it does not mean that it's the only important thing that we need to invest on. Uh, so we're going to be focusing obviously only on climate tech, but as a society, we also need to invest in education and health and many other topics. And same goes with software and hardware within climate. So obviously, climate change, if we want to solve it, we're going to need hardware. We're going to need breakthroughs in energy. We need breakthroughs in battery storage. We need breakthroughs in the way we produce food, in everything, in buildings, etc. But we also need software. Software is going to be needed for efficiency, for bringing more transparency, for bringing more efficiency within supply chains, etc. So we need both, for sure. So in terms of pure impact, for sure, what's going to drive more impact is going to be hardware, but we'll also need software. So on our end, we try to be both ambition when it comes to impact, but also ambitious when it comes to returns, because uh, they go hand in hand for us in, in how we want to do things. So we've built a portfolio model, a portfolio construction that is around, obviously, uh, precedency reserves and all the traditional stuff that uh, VCs do, but also in terms of portfolio construction for when it comes to technologies. And so far, we have one startup in the software space, one in the pure hardware space, or like physical world, I would say, and the other one in IoT, which is obviously both hardware and software. So, so far, very balanced. We will see how it evolves over time. But if we can keep a good balance, I think I'll be really proud of what we've done. And how do you think about your own capability set in relation to that? Yes, as an LP, I need to cover both 
both the ones that do digital and the ones that do hardware. But I don't really care about whether the single fund does it, does either or both. What I care about is whether there's actual capability to vet the deals and, and also help. So I'm curious to hear what you think there. Yeah. So for us, it comes down to mostly our team. So we have, uh, so personally, I come from a business background. I don't come from a technical background. So I also reach certain limitation at a certain point when it comes to deep due diligence. And I'm humble enough to say that I'm not able to carry all due diligence by myself. But fortunately, I'm surrounded by a lot of people who are much smarter than me in many aspects. And so we have an operational team, first of all, that has investment experience into climate. We also have advisors that we can lean upon. We have part-time experts on impact, climate, carbon removal, etc. that we can lean upon when we do diligences. We also have a number of our LPs who are skilled to climate that are keen to help on either due diligence pre-investment or helping post-investment once we start to really work with the startups. And then what we're also fortunate to have is a network of people that we can reach out to who are not necessarily vested with us but are experts in a certain topic, whether it's, I don't know, seaweed or algae, like on a specific uh, methane topic or whatever it is. And one of the wonderful things about working on impact and climate is that it's a very collaborative environment, meaning that one thing I've realized coming from more traditional background, uh, business background to climate now, is that people are a lot more willing to help each other, to share thoughts, to share due diligence, to share insights, because at the end of the day, we're tackling something which is so much bigger than ourselves that people tend to help each other a lot more. So in many uh, cases, when in a due diligence, we're not able to do everything fully by ourselves or we really wanted to have an expert advice, then we were also able to do so. So that enabled us to every time have comfort when we decided to make investment decisions. So now I'm going to shift topics again and I'm going to toot my own horn a bit. Homer. I think I, I'm allowed to. <laughs> I've recently written an article about, you know, VC fund sizes, fund announcements, all of that. And, you know, let's not forget Satgana at the moment of recording has not yet announced right? Yeah. And when we launch this episode, it will have. And so that's that's why I bring up the topics. So I'd love to ask you about as an emerging fund manager, as a first-time fund, as an early stage focused investor, which naturally means that you are a smaller sized fund by almost by definition, right? How did you think about that? How do you think about PR? How do you think about announcing your fund and, and guide us a bit through the learnings and the thought process basically? It's a very good and timely question. So, uh, indeed, we will announce uh, the first closing of our fund in a couple of days. And we had a lot of debate internally and also obviously look at industry practices. And so one of our key values is uh, integrity and it's uh, transparency. So we did. And the reason why I'm saying this is that, and I'm not going to pinpoint and, and finger point anyone, but we've seen a number of announcements where the announcement made uh, the reality look a little bit skewed towards uh, higher amounts than what the, the reality was. And so the thing that may be misleading sometimes is announcing a target fund size and making it look like it's a fully raised fund. I think there are 
some critics and voices that are uh, coming into the ecosystem and your uh, article a couple of days, David, was uh, super timely, obviously. And I think it's really good because it's all about bringing transparency into the ecosystem to be you know, fair to everyone, towards founders, so that they know whether there is capital or not to deploy, towards LPs, towards the ecosystem, towards partners, towards other GPs, etc. And so what we've decided to go about is to indicate what our target fund size is, which is 30 million, but we are being very transparent and clear on the fact that it has not been fully raised yet. We're just announcing a first closing of that fund. We think that is the right moment to do so because we've actually reached a first closing. So it's not just about, we have an ambition of raising that much, but actually nothing has been raised or no closing has been done. So there has been a first milestone, but it's still only a portion of what we're targeting to raise. And I'm also being very clear with all the journalists that I speak with, that I wanted to be clear that it's just a first closing and it's a target fund size. That's what I believe should be the industry practice. So yeah, that's how we thought about it. How do you think about, or how do you interact with founders also on that topic, right? Because you've been interacting with founders, obviously, right? During the whole fundraising process. So how do you think about how you communicate to them? Because there's also a lot of chatter about that, right? A lot of fundraisers are failed. A lot of entrepreneurs have kind of commented here and there saying, you know, I was kind of misled into thinking that, you know, there was money in the bank and there wasn't, or even on, on, on a topic that kind of very close to UVC and, and, you know, we could get also kind of some backlash on that is, is even syndicate leads, right? Syndicate leads getting allocations into, into startups or even leading rounds into startups. And then, well, for whatever reason, the syndicate fell apart. So it's a similar topic. How do you think about that? So first of all, where does this come from? Uh, it comes from the fact that as first-time fund managers, you need to do both things at the same time. It's a chicken and egg problem. You need to raise with LPs, but to raise with LPs, it's much easier to do so when you have a pipeline. So to do so, you need to speak with entrepreneurs. You need to know where they are in the fundraising and so on, so that you can show substance to your LPs. But if you don't have capital to deploy, you're a bit in a conundrum where, okay, you have a good pipeline, but you can't deploy. And so uh, what do you do as a GP? For us, we've always been very clear because once again, it comes down to integrity and it comes down to reputation. So we never misled entrepreneurs in making, making them think that we had the capital secured until we did the first closing. Luckily for us, it comes back to also the history uh, that we had of being a venture studio. We initially started by helping entrepreneurs with sweat equity from scratch without investing capital. So we were very upfront on saying, okay, we're going to do this for you and it's going to be only sweat equity. We're not able to invest capital, but it might come at a later stage. So we've always been very transparent uh, with entrepreneurs and I believe it should be the industry practice. And if you want to build a pipeline as a first time fund managers, maybe scout for startups and know where they are and maybe don't waste founders time or you tell them, okay, I'm happy to jump on a call just to learn a bit more and potentially we could position ourselves, but not to mislead founders in thinking that letting them think that you have uh, capital. I think that's just not good and we all have limited time and you can yeah. I, this is my argument right that is incredibly easy with serial entrepreneurs and experienced entrepreneurs in, in a highly developed and mature ecosystem incredibly hard for a first-time entrepreneur right? you know for some first-time entrepreneurs are, are are technically brilliant right but they have no idea about the business of vc they don't even understand how the the whole financing rounds work in startup land much less like how the vc world works how the vc uh, business works have you encountered yeah. those challenges? How have you navigated through that? 
For sure, for sure. Sometimes, um, you know, we have first-time entrepreneurs or people who are fresh grads because we also want to go super early. We want to go into the right universities that are climate-focused or uh, deep tech-focused or whatever. And so that means that it's people who sometimes don't even have a professional yeah, experience. Exactly. So obviously, they don't know anything about the VC world. They see big announcements from, you know, their older friends that did big rounds, etc. But that's, that's all they know. And so to me, it really comes back to integrity. So as a VC, one should not mislead a founder. It's as simple as that. And it should be, you know, very obvious, but don't waste people's time. We all have limited time during our career on this planet. So don't waste people's time. Do the right thing. Say the truth. And, and it, just, it should just be about that. There's also the personal story of the person fundraising. Sometimes you, you solve the need to start doing deals by either you know, putting together syndicates or you've got a bit of uh, money that stowed away that you can do as, as an angel. How did you go through that period yourself and and what worked and what worked less well? I, I think that could be cool to hear. So one thing that sometimes can be helpful for first-time funds that have a good deal in the pipeline is to do warehousing. We have not done so, but it's obviously a possibility when you have one anchor LP committed to a first closing. Another thing that's more and more common is indeed, as you say, Andres, um, syndicates. And in all honesty, if I could go back in the past, I think instead of launching a fund from the get-go, I would go with syndicates to start with, just to start uh, building a track record for it to be more readable for LPs. Also, what you can do is to already build a community of investors who are aligned with your thesis before launching the fully-fledged fund. You can also you know, sustain yourself with a small management fee or subscription fee on the deals that you do while you're still raising the fund because a fund in reality always takes 12, 18, 24 months to raise. So in the meantime, how do you do to sustain yourself and your team? This is another question. You can also test appetite for a specific thesis. And then it's also a lot easier once you've done five, 10 deals to go back to the market and saying, cool, we've done it, five, 10 deals. We learned what works, what doesn't, and now we're going to do it at scale in a more predictable manner, in a manner where you don't have to raise on a deal-by-deal -deal basis, etc. So just explaining what the syndicate strategy is about, I think it makes a lot of sense. Obviously, it's not all rosy. It also has some you know, obstacles and, and difficulties and, and minus downsides. Otherwise, uh, everybody would do that. One of them is potentially timeline to raise, because then obviously the capital is not available now. It's available only within a time frame of weeks, sometimes months. So, but again, you have to be upfront with entrepreneur and maybe don't take an exclusivity on the deal. Maybe say, okay, I have an allocation for the syndicate and I want to invest maybe 100K to 200K, but I can't confirm exactly when. And then you keep yourself posted with the entrepreneur, with the investors to do it as we go along and not mislead and, and withhold information until the last minute. I think you said something really interesting, Roman, and I want to come back to it, even though we're running out of time, but fuck that, which is you said doing syndicates as a way to kind of fine-tune your strategy, your thesis, kind of testing appetite. I'd love to ask you, do you have any learnings on that? You were doing some syndicates here and there. Did, you, did that refine you know, your approach in any way? Do you have any learning you can share? So actually, no, we haven't done uh, syndicates. We've done rather, we've uh, done more like sweat equity. So really starting yeah. to help Not entrepreneurs yeah. from scratch. So that was kind of our way to prove our thesis of helping entrepreneurs from scratch and helping them operationally, strategically, etc. So that was kind of our way to test our thesis and to validate it and to know that entrepreneurs buy into what we want to provide to them. But we haven't done actual syndicates. Yeah. Now I'm very happy because we have a fully fledged fund. We have done the first closing. We're going to scale from 
here, etc. But if I could go back in the past, I think it would be easier and better to do syndicate. So maybe that's uh, an advice for <laughs> aspiring uh, emerging VCs as well. Yeah. So we need to go to the quick fire, as David said just before, but I have one question that I want to ask before. And that is every time I find myself doing something on climate or on diversity or something like that, and the day ends, I kind of get a feeling like I should be doing this more. Personal gratification is quite big when doing that kind of thing. I'm curious to hear a bit about your, you know, realization as to, okay, I want to do climate and what's that done for you at a personal level and what got you to that realization? Yeah, very much so. So I'm very happy to hear that. First of all, Andreas, for me, it was very much a very strong realization that comes almost from the heart. You know, you want to do something good for the world. And so it also gets you to wake up in the morning knowing that it's not just about making money for yourself and your investors and so on, but it's also about doing something good. Doesn't mean that it's easy, but it really gives you stamina and, and strength to do so. And it also makes you more of a missionary than a mercenary. So it also helps you to navigate the lows a lot better because obviously doing being an entrepreneur and also being a first-time fund manager is a lot of highs, lots of lows, and the highs are very high and the lows are very low. And doing so from a place of you know purpose and love and really trying to do something good also helps you to navigate the lows. So um, that's really wonderful to do. And once you do so, you want to do it for the many, many years and decades to come. It also me uh, gets you to, to meet people who are also driven by the same thing. So even if we have diversity and if even if we meet so many different people, uh, we all are driven by the same goal. And that's a unifying thread that's also really good to have with the people we meet on a daily basis. With that out of the way, quick fire round, huh? You know what it's about 30 to 60 second answer questions. Are you ready? Let's go. Let's do it. So first question of the quick fire in climate, generally speaking, or sustainability, let's make it broader. In sustainability, generally speaking, or impact, generally speaking, what areas, sectors or technologies excite you the most that people around you don't really feel that much excited about? Yes, um, I would say the technologies that don't really need so much breakthroughs and the reason why i'm saying this is that i think there's a lot of excitement around new technologies to uh, decarbonize energy for example nuclear fusion and hydrogen and so on that's a topic that a lot of people talk about but i think there a lot of them are unproven we'll also talk about carbon removal which i think is obviously needed and many people think so as well but a lot of these technologies are unproven and the ones that excite me the most are actually the ones that are almost so dumb that you wonder how we didn't solve the problem so far. One of them is food waste. It still strikes me so, it's so crazy that one third of the food that is produced on a daily and yearly basis is actually wasted while 900 million people on this planet don't have enough to eat. And there's nothing we need to invent for that. We just need to be more efficient, more conscious, and just do the right thing and understand better where the food is, is wasted and so on. So it doesn't really require any technological innovation, but that does not mean that there's not going to be any technology companies that are going to help solve these problems. Second question of the quickfire round, Romain. This one I have to exclude, you know, aside from the syndicates first. What are your top tips for other emerging VCs out there? I think for me, it's mostly thinking long-term. It's such a long game. I'm in it, and the more I realize that, uh, you know, to really do something impactful, meaningful, you have to think 20 years. 
because obviously a fund is like a 10 year plus one plus one. So it's 12 years. But if you want to do a meaningful firm that uh, has, you know, more impact, etc., you want to do several funds. So that basically leads you to 20 years. And uh, we all know that very famous quote from Warren Buffett. It takes uh, 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to ruin it. And so always do the right thing. Think long term, build relationships. Also know when to engage with people. When is the right time to be on EUVC podcast? When is the right time to engage with that potential LP? When is the right time to reach out to EIF? When is the right time to engage with everyone? Because for some, you build a relationship, you build friendships. For some, you only have one shot, shot as well. So thinking on when to engage and always thinking long term. I love that. We're one of those, uh, you've got one shot. Yeah, <laughs> but I waited to do it hopefully right time <laughs> to, quote, to quote Eminem again what, what is the lyrics like one shot something <laughs> I can't remember yeah, yeah. need to check that one, one. <laughs> yeah. third and final question Roma. and you said earlier today in this, this recording you've been doing this for 10 years or so what has been the most counterintuitive learning in that period of time in venture it's a fast paced environment but a lot of things are very slow <laughs> That's one learning I got from my entrepreneurial journey is that as much as I'm an optimist and I usually say I'm short-term impatient, long-term patient. So I try to do things fast and everything moves super, super fast in terms of technology trends, in terms of rounds, in terms of dynamics, in terms of markets, etc. But it's also very slow in the sense that if you want to do something meaningful that really truly has impact, you need to think 10 years and rounds sometimes are also slow. Uh, getting LPs on board, closing a fund, lots of things are actually also very slow in this environment. So it's counterintuitive because we all think it's a super fast-paced environment, yeah. but actually you need to also think long-term and know that good things take time. It's the dichotomy of VC, right? <laughs> You've got the startups on the one hand and the LPs on the other, so quick and slow. <laughs> so. <laughs> Omar, thanks so much for joining us. It was awesome to finally bring you on the podcast. We have enjoyed knowing you for quite some time now. And I think in 12 days or so, we'll be seeing you at our cookout at Web Summit yes. as well. So that's amazing. Wonderful. Thank you so much, guys, for having me and keep on doing the wonderful work you're doing. Likewise, mate. Likewise. Thank you for listening to this episode of The European VC the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Vauban, a Qatar company, is now making it even easier to launch your angel syndicate with their new product called Atom. Angels provide first checks and are an integral component for founders to launch their businesses. With Atom, angels can band together to launch an SPV for $2,000 plus 2% of the raised capital, which is up to 200,000 US dollars. There's lower fees, more deals, and more equity ownership in the best tech companies. Check it out at vaban.io forward slash EUVC. And don't forget to mention EUVC.